Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Stephen Hayward, author of the new book, Patriotism is Not Enough, Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the Arguments that Redefined American Conservatism. Stephen is a visiting scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. I guess you're a unicorn at Berkeley. Uh, He's the author. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) He's the author of the two-volume political biography, The Age of Reagan, The Fall of the Old Liberal Order, 1964 to 1980, and The Age of Reagan, The Conservative Counter-Revolution, 1980 to 1989. He's written on a wide variety of subjects, including environmentalism, law, economics, and public policy for The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post and a bevy of other periodicals, and our listeners will likely be familiar with his work from the great blog, Powerline. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on. What compelled you to write about these two men, Harry Jaffa and Walter Burns, and their significance both in the history of American political philosophy generally and conservatism in particular? Right. Well, it, um, uh, you know, it really became a reason to write something of a memoir. I knew both of them fairly well. I was a student of Harry Jaffa's and then a colleague of Walter Burns at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. for a decade. And, you know, they had a bitter feud for, oh, 20 or 30 years. That was um, really unfortunate, I thought. Uh, but they agreed on so many things. And when they died coincidentally, if such a thing can be a coincidence, on the same day, about two years ago, sort of like Jefferson and Adams dying on the same day in 1826. I thought that's just too remarkable a coincidence. And it became the narrative device to write a book about the two men and their ideas and their wider circle of friends, because they not only had important arguments of their own, um, but they and a lot of political scientists of their same disposition really mounted a frontal challenge against uh, liberalism, and, and also, I think, refine American conservatism. So that's a lot for an opening statement. But but the book tries to tell a very rich story, but it also tries to do it in an accessible way, especially for a non-specialist or a non-political scientist. Well, and as you, as you note in the book, biography was one of the quintessential means for, for Jaffa and others of getting to these deeper questions that you address in the book about statesmanship and natural rights and a whole litany of other uh, core themes that run through what has been broadly called sort of the Claremont School of Thought. Now, to that end, during the 2016 presidential election, an East Coast-West Coast feud of sorts broke out over Donald Trump, and it didn't involve rappers, but rather conservative intellectual followers (laughs) of Leo Strauss. And You wrote a lengthy piece on this for the Weekly Standard, and, and I wonder, how do the contours of that battle relate to this book and these two men? Well, that article kind of grew out of this book. There's there's a lot of overlap between them, uh, although I finished the book before it was evident Donald Trump would even be the Republican nominee, let alone elected president. Uh, so I only have a couple of mentions of Trump in the book, and, and I speculate that Walter Burns would have strongly disliked Trump. I'm certain of that. Jaffa, I'm not so sure about. He might have liked Trump uh, because, remember, Jaffa was an early enthusiast for Barry Goldwater back in 1964. When a lot of a lot of other uh, political scientists, even the ones who became conservative, like Walter Burns, were still very uh, wary of Goldwater and the conservative movement, uh, so Jaffa was early to the parade, you might say. Uh, well, I, I mean uh, that I, I actually in the book try to avoid getting too far into the weeds of the the famous or semi-famous East and West Coast split among uh, students inspired by Leo Strauss and. Uh, I do have a, a few things about that argument, and the important part is, and that's why I got the title of the book, Patriotism is Not Enough, 
uh, is uh, one aspect of that fight is how to understand John Locke and the American founding. And the East Coast Straussians supposedly, I mean, there's a variety among them, but they supposedly think that America is a purely modern, liberal individualist regime, stable and decent, but not as great uh, or as uh, admirable even as the classical regimes of ancient Greece, which really had uh, uh, you know uh, some classical idea of virtue uh, uh, at their core. Uh, and Jaffa and his followers actually think that we're that the United States is much closer to the noble regime of greatness and excellence as envisioned by Aristotle, although with some modifications. And you know that may seem like kind of a silly or unimportant argument if you're not in the depths of political philosophy, and maybe it is. Uh, uh, but both Jaffa and Burns agreed that patriotism required a foundation. Uh, they both agreed with what Ronald Reagan called for in his great uh, farewell address in 1989, that we need to have an informed patriotism. And so a lot of the book is talking about the things they agreed about, about why we should study the American founding intensively and also respect it for its nobility and goodness uh, and enduring truth and not just as a matter of historical fascination. Yeah, and and patriotism is a huge theme that runs through the book. And you even say, uh, following a quote, I believe from from Jaffa, that you would say that a person who doesn't respect the country in the end will not respect himself. This may be one reason why so many America-hating leftists are such unpleasant and unhappy people. And, and, And that follows a quote where Jaffa says, Patriotism is civic friendship. Patriotism is the link between justice and friendship in its purest or transpolitical form. And it goes on, those who see each other as utterly alien cannot be fellow citizens. Define patriotism for these men. Uh, well, it uh, you know normally patriotism, uh, sort of literally or narrowly speaking, is love of country, but but uh, or love of your father's country. I mean, think about the root of the word, you know, patriae, right? Uh, and and so you're attached to your country in the ordinary sense because it's the land of your fathers um, uh, or mothers and fathers, if we want to be gender equal these days. Uh, and uh, both Jaff and Burns thought that America is different. I mean, really what I'm drawing out here is another way of thinking about what we usually call American exceptionalism, although I don't use that term. I'm trying to use new vocabulary if I can. And the point is, is that, uh, you know, America, because of its aspirations, uh, because of its self-conscious founding on new principles of justice, as we see in the Declaration of Independence, uh, that that making patriots, the title of Walter Burns' final book was Making Patriots, making patriots here is a more self-conscious and deliberate act. And of course, we do a miserable job of that these days. You know, we either neglect it when, in fact, our universities aren't actively teaching the opposite, that America is a uh, you know an unjust country. It's been nothing but oppression from A to Z, right? That's the oppression narrative you get in so much of the humanities these days in colleges. And, you know, A, that narrative is wrong. Um, uh, and and uh, B, uh, understanding why it's wrong requires going back and, again, recovering and understanding why this is a good and just country, whatever faults and mistakes that we've made. Yeah, and, and related to that, it, it's funny. There's a quote that you uh, fr- from the book, for Jaffa Burns and others from this circle, political philosophy is not merely a matter of theory informing practice, but literally a means of saving souls. Jaffa wrote, and you quote here, I believe that the enterprise of Western civilization is consummated each time a soul is saved from the dark night of fanatical obscurantism. It is consummated whenever one soul is released from the pessimism that truth is unobtainable or not worth the trouble to obtain it, unquote. And it's funny because you just referenced right there 
essentially that today's progressivism, which couches itself in, in terms of moral terms, as we're on the right side of history. These are the beliefs that you have to hold if you are a good and moral person. Yet Jaffa also is essentially claiming the morality of his political philosophy and the American political philosophy as a means of saving souls. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, well, um, uh, not what I just said right there. I mean, that's a mouthful. The amazing thing is he wrote that passage you just cited in a uh, response to one of his arguments he was having with Walter Burns. And that's one of the reasons I re- many of us regret that they feuded is that there's such beautiful work that went on between them when they weren't insulting each other. Right. It was really ter- too bad about that. Uh, but, you know, Jaffa was uh, uh, and I think Burns was the same way from people who I know who were his students at Cornell years ago. Uh, they both were the kind of people who could literally change your life and change your way of thinking. Um, and it, almost in a way that ev- people talk about evangelism. And, you know, they didn't approach their classrooms that way, but they were both so compelling. Uh, and and you could see that they were so much more serious than the usual political science you got from other courses that uh, it's like a night and day comparison studying politics with these two men uh, and with anybody else. Yeah. And, and you get that sense from the book because there's a there's an understanding of politics in terms of both tragedy and, and comedy. There's the there's sort of the poetry and the, the human nature element of it. And then there's these these higher aspirational elements to it. And and so I would ask the question, how is it that Jaffa and Burns emerge in the middle of essentially a barren wasteland for conservative thought and interest in the American founding? Because you talk about essentially the, the early progressive movement and then how it evolves uh, during the New Deal and after into the 50s. How is it that conservative thought and this focus on the founding emerges when that is so alien to the academy at that point in time? Right. Well, that's a two-part story, really, and 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 understanding requires joining the two parts. You know, first, uh, Jaffa and Burns and so many others, like Alan Bloom and Martin Diamond, I mentioned in the book and discuss, were students of Leo Strauss, the famous German Jewish emigre to the United States in the 1930s. And you know, well, there's a lot to say about him, right? A controversial and complicated figure, but in one sentence, he restarted the serious study of classical political philosophy and thought that in classical rationalism, we could find some of the remedies for the dead end of modern philosophy, especially nihilism, the kind of things that led to Hitler, right? This was obviously a subject of great immediate interest to people like Strauss and who came to study him. Uh, the second part of the story, and, and out of this you get the synthesis of the, the new appreciation of America, is that uh, it's a long story, but in one sentence, I think a lot of the mid-century liberals, like Arthur Schlesinger, to pick a famous name, I think they understood that the progressives of the Woodrow Wilson era had made a mistake in rubbishing the American founding, which is what they did, right? Progressivism was really an attempt to get over and get beyond the American founding and leave it behind us. And people like Schlesinger, uh, Lewis Hartz, Richard Hofstadter, you can go down a long list of very elegant writers, um, but I think superficial thinkers, although they were correct and I think very decent people in a lot of ways, although they're correct about the defects of progressivism, their own re- capture, so to speak, of the American founding was uh, defective, limited, superficial, as I say. And I think a lot of the students of Strauss, and Strauss himself never wrote much about America, but a lot of his students looked around and said, ah, this is interesting. 
Uh, we should look more closely at the American founding, at the Federalist Papers, at Locke, at people like Madison and Jefferson and the rest of them, and Tocqueville for that matter. And so the second generation of, um, of uh, political philosophers turned their attention more wholly to America. And that's when I think they saw the defects of consensus liberalism. And all these people who, including Jaff and Burns, thought of themselves as liberal Democrats in the 1950s and who voted for Adlai Stevenson, uh, gradually became conservatives and Republicans. And one of the, the philosophical concepts that emerges from this basically refounding or focus on the founding again is the idea of a, a natural rights philosophy and, and natural rights based declarationism and, and constitutionalism, which stands in contrast with historicism, scientism, positivism, etc. Describe the natural rights philosophy and Jaffa and Burns influence on it. Well, you know, their idea was that uh, whatever distinctions or differences you might make out between the ancient world and the modern world in philosophy, the idea of nature as the ground of right and as the ground of politics uh, was something that, you know, modern philosophy had rejected. Uh, we start with Nietzsche or whoever you want, certainly Heidegger and, and you know, modern nihilists of the 20th century. Uh, but that spills over, of course, into legal positivism and uh, progressivism today, which rejects nature, and of course that means rejecting human nature, right? Uh, and so the recovery of nature as a standard versus just, you know, wherever history with a capital H is taking us is central to their enterprise. I think you want to connect that with one other thing we mentioned earlier but didn't discuss, and that's the idea of statesmanship. Uh, you know, these days, if you walk into any political science department and say, I want to study statesmanship, they look at you like you're from Mars. Uh, and so a lot of political science these days is all regression analysis and formal mathematical models. And it's very sophisticated uh, and often doesn't get you very far in understanding political life. That's why both Jaff and Burns uh, said that, you know, it turns out biography, especially of the greatest statesmen, you know, Churchill, Lincoln, George Washington, Charles de Gaulle, uh, Bismarck, Napoleon even, right, as well as ancient statesmen are important to study closely and carefully and seriously as a way of understanding political life. So, you know, what you see here is a completely different disposition to understanding politics and political life than you get from conventional political science. You know, recovering nature and human nature as the ground of our rights and, and the idea of statesmanship. And then, of course, what's central to statesmanship is the idea of prudence, another subject thought not fit for serious study by academics today. Uh, and yet uh, I think that the, uh, the people who study those subjects end up understanding politics much more profoundly than your average political scientist these days. And one of the ignored uh, barbarous relics, as it were, of that era that is ignored today is the Declaration of Independence and its impact on the Constitution and uh, the American political philosophy, distinctively American political philosophy itself. Speak a little bit to Jeff and Burns's views on the Declaration of Independence and your view of the significance of the Declaration in America in America and its founding and today. Yeah, that's a big subject. Uh, let's see, two or three parts of this quickly. One is, of course, the left hates the Declaration because, uh, or just rubbishes it because they don't believe that there's a such thing as a self-evident truth. They don't believe in the laws of nature and nature's God. Uh, and then above all, if you fight through that 
problem. Uh, they'll say, well, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, so they were hypocrites. We don't need to take them seriously. So they just sort of dismiss it, right? Uh, and that sort of leaves aside a whole lot of practical considerations you can go through. Jeff would like to talk about how the fundamental task in understanding the Declaration and the Constitution was understanding how to tell the difference between the principles of the Constitution and its compromises. I mean, any sensible person understands that if you didn't make some accommodations to slavery in 1787, we wouldn't have a country, we wouldn't have a constitution, and the alternative was probably more security for slavery, not steps to try and limit it and ultimately eliminate it, which are present in the constitution. So that's one point. Now, Jaff and Burns uh, uh, largely agreed about the greatness of the Declaration, but disagreed on one key point. Jaffa thought the most important single word in the Declaration was equal. From that sentence, all men are created equal. And from there, he spun out a very sophisticated understanding of the equality of our political rights. Ja uh, Burns thought the most important word was in the next sentence, secure, to secure these rights, the rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We, we institute governments. His point drawn really straight from Hobbes was, if you don't have a government to protect rights, uh, your natural rights aren't worth very much. Right. Uh, that's straight out of Hobbes. Uh, I think they're both have a good point here. I think you need both of those things. Um, and as I say, uh, like intellectuals can do, they can fall into uh, a feuding about this. that was probably more severe than it needed to be. Yeah, as as is their want. Uh, right. One of the one of the manifestations of the move away from understanding the American founding and and the natural rights heritage and, and the like is the administrative state. That sort of progressivism manifested in the form of uh, all manner of nameless, faceless agents who essentially make law in the country. And also, as we know, the administrative state has its own courts. It basically eliminates the separation of powers and creates a whole another branch of, uh, of our political system. And Burns, Jaffa, and others did a lot of work on the theoretical underpinnings of the administrative state. What are your thoughts on where we're going in terms of the administrative state in America, its significance in your book, and the fact that we have a chief strategist to a president in Steve Bannon who said that the goal is to deconstruct the administrative state? Yeah, I mean, I think this represents, um, uh, to an extent not appreciated, even by conservatives, uh, the ways in which we've made progress, at least on the level of ideas. I mean, that phrase administrative state is a little bit bulky, uh, cumbersome. And for a long time, I mean, I first started hearing the phrase back in the 1980s as a graduate student, and it was sort of among the Claremont circle and a few other people's. And now, as you say, we have a chief aide to the president of the United States talking about that phrase uh, in public and saying they want to attack it. George Will uses that phrase prominently in his columns. Um, and even a lot of liberals now use that phrase to describe the character of our government today. Uh, I did, by the way, uh, uh, did some investigation and traced the phrase back to the late 1940s, the phrase administrative state. It may have been used earlier than that, but uh, now it's on everybody's lips. And that represents uh, uh, an important uh, milestone because, as Margaret Thatcher liked to say, first you win the argument, then you win the political fight. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a, again, a complicated story, but I think the two most important parts um, of many would be these. One is the administrative state represents a different kind of rule. I mean, the basic question of politics is who rules? And the American idea is the people rule. The people are sovereign. Uh, the administrative state says the experts rule. And the experts are 
uh, not the people. Uh, the experts are immune from the direct reach of the people. They're very hard to control. It represents a government that goes in itself, uh, and that's why it's so very hard to stop. And uh, just because Trump and uh, and Steve Bannon say they want to deconstruct it uh, doesn't mean that it will necessarily happen. It's going to be a very hard and difficult fight. Uh, the second thing is, is uh, uh, that whole idea of expertise. Uh, it's the idea that we're going to have scientific government. Uh, as I put it in the book, uh, the theory is that bureaucrats will replace statesmen uh, and science will replace ambition as the things that move our politics forward. And the idea that we can have experts who are immune from politics is, is of course, laughable. I mean, 100 years ago, maybe the naive Woodrow Wilson thought this made sense. But I think today we understand that, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, you name it, they're deeply affected by politics and ideology, as well as the defects of bureaucratic government that people like the Public Choice School explain. They get single-minded in their mission, don't make trade-offs, and the government is very poorly in practice. One uh, particularly interesting tertiary point in your book, but which also runs through, I think, the work of a lot of quote-unquote Claremont School scholars is the idea that history didn't end, as, as they say, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you quote Jaffa and his prescience when it comes to fearing that the collapse of the Soviet Union might actually lead to something far worse in the ideological uh, the, the war of ideas that we're engaged in. Speak a little bit to that. Yeah, you know, we all remember the, you know, the Fukuyama article, The End of History, and the general climate after the Cold War ended that, gosh, it's now, you know, liberalism in the old sense, free markets, democracy, uh, you know, the new world order, as uh, the first President Bush talked about. We thought that was, you know, good times were here. And for a while, it looked like that, right? The 1990s were a pretty happy time for the world overall. Uh, and, you know, and I remember that lecture of Jaffa's and I thought, oh, gosh, he's just being pessimistic and grumpy and, you know, he misses the Cold War. I don't know. Uh, but, boy, he turned out to be exactly right, uh, whether it's uh, Islamic terrorism uh, and, you know, what amounts to a world crisis and clash of civilizations and Sam Huntington's phrase or whether you look at the, uh, the, the much deeper radicalization on college campuses these days that I think is worse than the political correctness of the 1980s in a lot of ways, um, he turns out to have been absolutely right about that. And you know, one of the parts of that insight that I quote in there is, he, is I'm paraphrasing here loosely, uh, is, uh, look, you know, as long as you had a Soviet Union and a foreign enemy, uh, a lot of people understood that uh, in some instinctual way, if not an intellectual way, that uh, you know, radicalism, leftism uh, was something that was uh, inimical to our life. Uh, but now the Soviet Union has gone away, uh, leftism was removed the stigma of being some kind of agent for a foreign enemy. And now it was in a certain way liberated to mutate, which I think is exactly what's happened. So I think our universities are worse off than they were 30 years ago. Uh, and I think that the nihilism of the left is deeper than it was 30 years ago. And I mean, one thing that's on my mind these days watching these free speech controversies on campus is that the left is now very open about the idea that free speech itself is a tool of oppression. Uh, an earlier generation of liberals would never have said that, or leftists even, right? Um, you know, the communists in the 1950s during the McCarthy era, they retreated behind free speech. Now they rubbish the idea of free speech um, and justify, uh, you know, very brutal censorship. And that's the direction we're going. And it's just getting worse. Yeah, we're living in the illiberal age, uh, as it yeah. were, you could argue. And right. Relating to that is you, you quote one author in this book that the primary attraction of Marxian socialism was not economic, but moral. And I believe it was Jaffa who said that that. 
essentially the best and the brightest are always going to be attracted to socialism because it kind of feeds their soul. There's, in other words, it's a materialist, it's a materialist worldview. Yet their belief in it stems from something that's deeper. Their their essentially sophist view of morality. Uh, given that that's the case, and as you've discussed, that we've now had multiple generations of progressivism dominating on college campuses, and we went from leftist liberalism to leftist illiberalism now, how do we supplant this sort of false morality and relativism and scientism, positivism, historicism with a belief in freedom in the American system once again? Because essentially that is the real war for America. Either those ideas triumph or they fail, and we're a fundamentally different country. Yeah, well, it's a difficult problem. Uh, I think the simplest part of it, you know, the defense of free markets, if you just want to look at economics for a minute, for a very long time was really on their superior efficiency. You know, it creates more wealth. And, and that never got to the moral dissatisfaction of people who dislike suffering and inequality, right? And it really, I think we didn't really see the advance or uh, uh, in favor of free markets until you started having people like uh, Michael Novak, who passed away recently, to pick one name, started making a moral defense of markets. And that's all very good and necessary, and we need more of it. But I, I think you need to go beyond that. I don't think, um, uh, as you know, Jaffa and Burns and others argued, I don't think you really reach the souls of individuals until you uh, get, uh, convey a broader appreciation of what I call the metaphysical basis of human freedom, right? It's more than just economics. It's what does it mean to be a free soul? Uh, what does it mean to be a free society? And what I find with students, and I have a lot of liberal students at Berkeley who are very bright but very confused, you know, they think that free speech is a human right, but so is free health care is a basic human right. And, you know, you have to sort through those confusions and it takes a while. And there's a lot of resistance because, by the way, who's against health care for everybody? I mean, nobody in a, an ordinary sense. Um, but uh, but if you just talk about who's going to pay for it, that's not very persuasive. If you start you have to draw into the argument in, in great levels of detail about uh, uh, you know, the distinction between natural rights and positive rights, uh, the problems that come about when you have an unlimited view of what government must do or should view, should do. And, you know, uh, uh, it, uh, you have to patiently work through those things to get students to think about it. Uh, and I don't ask the liberal students to give up their goal of having universal health care. Um, but I do try and shake their view that it's simply a, a simple matter of declaring a right and then writing checks. Yeah. And then and maybe another part of it is they would assert that there's no such thing as a better morality or a worse morality, but they are asserting that their view of morality is the right one, and there's a contradiction there. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is uh, I always thought, uh, and I think I say in the book, that I always thought Alan Bloom overdid his uh, depiction of moral relativism among college students. Uh, uh, what I think is that uh, there are actually very few pure, 100% moral relativists among college students. They actually have a very strong sense of justice, but it's very incoherent. And it's very, of course, uh, conforms to modern cliches. But, you know, you ask them about uh, genocide in Darfur, they're very worked up about the injustice of that. Uh, you know, the, the more left you get, there's the injustice of patriarchy and sexism and so forth. And so I, I find you can work with all that. And what you, it, it's actually not hard to point out to students that they don't really have a consistent view of justice. It's not grounded on anything. Uh, and and you can make them think about this a little bit, and you can make some headway with that, I think. Uh, 
And uh, you know, one of my examples these days is uh, and I have fun with this in classes and I have a large class of 175 students this semester. And it turns out they know nothing of serious moral philosophy. But most of them know about what's very popular in higher education these days, and it's the trolley car experiment. Um, many listeners may know this. It's the thought experiment that Michael Sandel at Harvard is especially good at. There's a trolley, runaway trolley running down the track. It's going to run over five people. But if you flip the switch, it'll get on a sidetrack and run over one person. What do you do? And people, students love this experiment. And it's really stupid, actually. It's just very narrow utilitarianism. Uh, and, you know, there's uh, no awareness of Aristotle's ethics, for example, to pick one book. Uh, and so you really, these days, we need to start over again with basic moral reasoning. Uh, and it's amazing how little that is done anymore. And hopefully one way to, to get that jump started is for students to read your book, Patriotism <laughs> is Not Enough, Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the Arguments that Redefined American Conservatism. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us and, and urge all listeners to check out this book. Well, thank you, Ben. This has been fun. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.